Well, good morning. As you're turning to Haggai and finding it there at the end of the Old Testament, so if you've been following us along in Matthew, jumping two or three books to the left, you'll find the book of Haggai. You know, as I was studying this week, as I was looking at what it was that the the people of post-exilic Israel were going through and enduring, and the occasion, the reason, the context for the writing, I recall just the things in life over time that have caused me to fear, to doubt. The further back you go, the somewhat sillier it seems. I remember as a child, I hated going down to the basement by myself. Uh, My imagination would run wild with all the grisly ways I would meet my end while obediently fetching something from the basement. Upon finishing the task or gathering the items that were requested, I would run up the stairs as fast as I could, often skipping stairs on my way up, in order to escape whatever gruesome fate would befall me if I was a second slower. Interestingly, though, I never had those same concerns or fears when I was with someone else. I would even play in the basement. We would have a great time. I don't think a single time the thought ever entered my mind of that impending doom. And it's somewhat what fascinating how God has wired us to take comfort and assurance from the presence of another. I mean, it's hardwired into us. I mean, from the very moment of creation, God looked at Adam after declaring all of creation good. He looks at Adam and says, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. So what does he do? He creates a helper, one who strengthens him. It's the word ezer. It's a strength for him. He creates woman. The presence of another makes the terrifying less so, sometimes eliminating it altogether. It makes difficult tasks easier. It's a guardrail against error. God has created us to find comfort in relationship. This morning, we're going to look at the comfort that God provides to post-exilic Israel as the task before them begins to feel overwhelming. As the fear begins to creep in, the fear that just a few weeks earlier they had repented of as they turned back to the Lord, a fear that had led to spiritual apathy and presumptuous disobedience for over 15 years as they stole from God to take care of themselves. And this example we see from how God comforts Israel should encourage us as we find that we have the same promises from God in the New Testament. It's the same God who comforted Israel, who comforts us as believers today, as we encounter difficulties, as we encounter dangers, and as we encounter fears in life. So if you'll read along with me, we're going to read just the first few verses of Haggai chapter 2 this morning. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage. Courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning, as we look at this example that has been provided to us from the life of Israel, and as your prophet Haggai spoke your words to them, words of comfort in the midst of discouragement, of fear, of threats. Father, would we understand and rightly apply this same comfort to our lives? Let us look for it in the right places. Let us take note of what it is that brings comfort so that we learn to cling to, to think on, and dwell on what is true and what is right. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we move from Haggai's comforting words at the end of chapter 1 in light of this returned Israel, this post-exile, that's why we say post-exilic Israel. It's really the southern kingdom of Judah, but you know, they were originally the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Once they were both put into exile, the only one that returned was Judah. So at the point that they returned from exile, whenever you see a reference to Israel, it's to that southern kingdom or all that's left of Israel. And chapter 1 ended on a very encouraging note in light of post-exilic Israel's obedience and the exhortations that we saw toward courage and God's assurance that he was, in fact, with them. That excitement felt at the end of chapter 1, though, is beginning to wane. And so God sends another message through Haggai the prophet in order to strengthen their hands for obedience in the work of rebuilding the temple and specifically to address and prevent a return to the fear that had paralyzed them 16 to 17 years earlier. Verses 1 to 2 let us know that this next message from God to the leaders and the people came approximately three weeks after the last message. It hasn't been a lot of time. We left off last week again with the people responding by listening to the words of God through Haggai. They came together. They worshiped the Lord. They repented of their sin. This would have almost certainly included repentance, sacrifices, perhaps times of fasting. It was then as a result of this turning back to the Lord that the Lord encouraged the people by telling them that he is with them. We see that at the end of chapter 1. And then the Spirit stirred up the people, so they restarted the work on the temple. In those intervening three to four weeks, they've likely been gathering the wood and other building materials and preparing and cleaning the foundation that had been laid 16 to 17 years earlier before the work stopped, prepping for the construction of the temple walls on that foundation. And though the people were outwardly continuing in obedience, discouragement and fear were beginning to creep back in. The scourgement of the overwhelming task can be observed in verses 3. We see the fear beginning to creep back in in verse 5, as God says to them through Haggai, do not fear. It's likely that their enemies, who had frightened them from building so many years earlier, had renewed their efforts to thwart the building as word began to get out. As they went into the mountains, under the hillsides, began chopping down trees and bringing the wood, as they began to do the cleaning, as they began to do these things, the enemies, the other people of the land, began to take notice. In fact, these same enemies pop back up a few years later when Nehemiah shows up to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're not passively sitting by, letting Israel do whatever they want. They want to thwart Israel. 
And on top of it all, they were discouraged by the impoverished, impoverished conditions of the temple. And there's a concern here about a potential relapse into that spiritual apathy that had plagued the nation for nearly two decades. So God sends Haggai with another message, a message of comfort and a message of hope for the people. And this message he sends stands as an example of how to deal with our own soul when it is discouraged and downcast and struggles with fear, as well as how we might encourage others. After introducing the specificity of the time in verse 1, verse 2 shows us that the same leaders are addressed. Zerubbabel, Jehozadak, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, as well as the people at large. But there's one additional term that's added to the people at large, one we haven't encountered yet, and that is the term remnant. This is not a benign term. It's a term that was meant to encourage the people, to help remind them of their identity, of the promises associated with their position as the remnant of Israel and all that that meant. The first time that term shows up is actually all the way back in Genesis 45, when Joseph is revealing to his brothers God's greater plan and redeeming him from their sinful attempts at both killing him and then sending him into slavery, trying to get rid of their brother. In Genesis 45, 7, we read, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. See, a famine had come over the land so much so that people were perishing left and right. The only source of food was found in Egypt, and God had used the sinful actions of his brothers decades earlier to prepare to save fledgling Israel or pre-Israel, the ancestors of Israel, to fulfill the promises God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God later answers, much later in Israel's history, Hezekiah's prayer. And through Isaiah, he promised that he would preserve a remnant of Israel. In 2 Kings 19.31, he says, For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Through the prophet Isaiah, in the midst of the deportation of that southern kingdom of Judah, he says in Jeremiah 23.3, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. Out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. Micah, who prophesied at the same time as Isaiah, proclaimed in Micah 2.12, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely assemble and gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. And then later in Micah 7.18, who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and forgives the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging, loyal love. Finally, Zephaniah, who prophesied just prior to and at the start of Jeremiah's ministry, proclaimed, And the coast will be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They will pasture on it. In the houses of Ashkelon, they will lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will care for them and restore their fortune. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. For they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. You see, there was a great history. There was great theological importance to this term, remnant. The language of a remnant is pregnant with meaning. It calls upon these people to recognize who they are. 
They are the people of God. It reminds them of their identity, that God has chosen them. It reminds them of the promises he has made to them. This is an important reminder for us as well. When we're discouraged, when we're fearful, we should take the time to remember our identity. Well, we're not the remnant of Israel, so who are we? Well, the epistles in the New Testament do this over and over. They remind us that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are children of God, that we are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, that we are adopted into God's own family. The Psalms are replete with descriptions of the unique relationship that a believer has with God. God is unique in that he dwells with his people. He visits his people. He cares for his people. And he is intimately involved in their lives. This identity provides a fitting foundation to what God is about to say through Haggai as he works to strengthen the hearts of the people in their obedience and in their work. Verse 3 is interesting in that as God seeks to comfort someone, I think about how we comfort others. When we show up, we immediately want to try to tell somebody it's going to be okay, right? Well, what does God do? Look at this. God, in essence, says, yeah, it's pretty pitiful. He looks at it and says, what you've observed is right. Things do, in fact, look discouraging. In fact, let's heighten this a little bit further. You remember what the temple used to look like? Does it even begin to compare with what's in front of you now? He doesn't tell the people they're incorrect. He doesn't tell them the situation is not difficult. You see, there's, there's really absolutely no benefit. And this is an observation to make here. There's no benefit. There is nothing spiritual about pretending things are good when they are not, humanly speaking. In fact, it's a form of deception to pretend everything's okay when everything is crumbling in around you. Even more importantly, if you refuse to acknowledge, this is really the why, if you refuse to acknowledge the human hopelessness of a situation, if you are unwilling to admit to times of difficulty and at times feelings of despair, then you are in danger of stealing glory from God. Now, what do I mean by that? How is that true? Because if you won't recognize how hopeless it is from the human condition, then you can't Recognize how great the provision of God is when he delivers you. Instead, what you've done is you've downplayed his provision. You've downplayed his sovereignty. You've downplayed his rescuing. Since it wasn't so bad to begin with. It is not sinful to say that something is hard. It is not sinful to say that all around you the world feels at times like it's caving in. It is not sinful to say that you are at a loss and starting to feel hopeless. The question is, what do you do next? When you recognize the difficulty, what do you do? When you feel the terror, where do you turn? It is right to acknowledge when things look difficult, painful, and uncertain because it's in those times that the people of God are to turn to God. I want to tell you something that's it's going to sound counter-Christian culture. Something you've probably heard. You may have heard the, the statement that God will never give you more than you can handle. That's a lie. There is no such statement in Scripture. 
God has never promised that. Rather, God often gives us more than we can handle in our own strength so that we will learn to trust and rely upon him. In fact, the very verse persons want to appeal to in 1 Corinthians 10, where they claim that God doesn't give us more than we can endure, starts out, the verse immediately before that says, take heed lest you fall. Because it's all about relying upon the Spirit, relying upon Christ, relying upon God. It has nothing to do with our ability to sustain ourselves and to persevere and man up and make it through. It has everything to do with turning to God. Our response is to be what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, don't stand up tall. Don't say, don't buck up and say you can do it. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Recognize your spiritual neediness and at times even your physical neediness that he may exalt you at the proper time, it goes on to say, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Well, God asks through Haggai here in verse 3, how many of you remember the greatness, the glory of the former temple? This would have been specifically calling out those who were 70 years old approximately or older. Given the question in the second half of the verse, it appears that there were several, perhaps many, who actually did remember and could tell of the glory of that former temple. The language suggests, though it does not demand, that Haggai himself remembered that former temple and thought fondly of it. And now when they compared it to a bare foundation and the meager start to their work, the, what would have felt like inadequate resources, especially for those who remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, who was the richest man in all the earth and outfitted the temple accordingly. As they thought about those things and compared it to those things, how great would be the discouragement. And I can't help but wonder, and I asked myself this as I was studying, why is God drawing this comparison? Why is he, to a people who are already discouraged, already downtrodden, why is he doubling down on their discouragement? What is God doing here? Well, God is teaching this remnant an incredibly valuable lesson. Namely, that present circumstances do not and will never dictate God's faithfulness. No matter how bleak, no matter how difficult things may feel, God is still at work. And his plans will always be accomplished. Current events, political conditions of your country, the present spiritual conditions of the church do not dictate God's faithfulness and do not manipulate his future plans. God is neither controlled nor limited by these things or by the bleakness of the situation. We really have such a limited perspective on what God is doing, don't we? It doesn't make the situation less painful. It doesn't mean that the fear, the suffering, or the pain is less real. But God reminds us that he is constantly at work. And we see only a fraction of that larger picture. Think of Job. Old Testament St. Job, if he had tried to evaluate God's faithfulness based on his physical, familial, and financial devastation at that time, like his friends were trying to do, he would have descended into utter hopelessness. Job was in pain. He was really hurting. He was actually 
physically, emotionally, and spiritually aching. Job had no idea what God was doing or what God had in store for him on the other side of his suffering. He simply knew this. This is all he knew. He had to trust God because God had been faithful. He didn't know why. He didn't know what. He didn't know the reason. He had to be faithful. And God, God desires that we trust him and truly believe what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 8, 28, where he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And don't stop the verse there because it goes on to say, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, the importance of remembering your identity. God has so much to teach us, but it seems that the lessons we learn best often come through seeing God work in the midst of trials, difficulties, and suffering, isn't it? Now, this is not because God delights in our suffering. It's because we're so obstinate. We're so hard-hearted. We're so slow to learn. And we become complacent when things are easy. We become forgetful when things are easy. Take a moment and think about that. Do you really find that you have grown closer to God, that you have learned to depend on Him more, that your trust and faith in Him has grown, that your love for Him has been fired when things are simple and easy, when life seems carefree? Or is it when it has been a trial? Let us not be quick to regard with jealousy the person who seems to be living a carefree life without ever having to struggle. It is more often a sign of God's judgment than his blessing. It is the one whom the Lord loves that he trains and disciplines for righteousness. I train my children to stay out of the road. It's not because I don't want them to have fun, but because it protects them. Only an unloving parent would allow a child to run carefree in a busy street. We must remember that our greatest happiness will never be found in life on this earth, but rather in the life to come. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, we are to learn to enjoy this life, but we are to learn to find that joy in the midst of, not in escaping the toil and the hardship. And the greatest joy that can be found in this world is found in remembering our Creator and seeking to please Him through this toil, this hardship, this difficulty. But returning to Haggai, we see in verses 4 to 5 a response, a comfort from God as this fear is beginning to creep back in amongst this remnant. This fear that risks derailing the obedience and taking them back into their spiritual apathy. Verse 4 opens with, but now take courage. Haggai repeats the instruction three times to each of the groups that he's speaking to. To the political leaders, to the spiritual leaders, and to the remnant of the people. Take courage. You may recognize the language, take courage. It's repeated seven times to Joshua when he is taking over the leadership of Israel after Moses. For example, we read in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. 
A few verses later, Deuteronomy 31.23. Then he commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the sons of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Later in, we read in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? He in fact has many times. Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now here's a question for you. When you are dismaying, when you are discouraged, when you are fearful, how much does it help for someone to simply say, take courage, stop worrying? Or you're not less spiritual if you say it doesn't really help all that much. Unfortunately for a lot of Christians, that's the extent of their counsel. It's to tell you to stop being discouraged. They may even tell you that you need to have joy. In fact, God says, don't be anxious, so stop being anxious. Now those are all true statements, right? We can agree, those are true statements. If they're true then, why don't they help? Why are they not enough? Why do they often increase the discouragement, the difficulty, and the feelings of discouragement? The answer is that they haven't yet offered the comfort or the other side. They've simply offered correction. Perhaps another way of saying it is, it, saying it is that they have provided the law but not the grace. Notice what God does through Haggai. God gives the grace and the motivation for obeying the instruction. What does God say? Why take courage? I am with you. We started to look at this last week. As the people responded, God drew near to them, stirred them up by his spirit for the work, and he declared, I am with you. Here he repeats it, I am with you. This promise of the nearness of God is repeated in verse 5. And it ties itself back and reminds them of his faithfulness in the Exodus and in the covenant he made with that first generation of Israel to encourage the people for their wilderness crossing and all that lay before them. God says, my spirit is in your midst. Do not fear. And here God is saying, like the Exodus generation, my spirit is still with you. In the passages that we read from Deuteronomy and Joshua, What did God say to Joshua when telling him to be strong and courageous? Did you notice it? He said, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He said, I will be with you. In Joshua 1.9, he said, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is the comfort that was given to Joshua. It's a comfort that's repeated throughout the Psalms. It's one of the reasons the Psalms provide such comfort is because they show the nearness of God. That comfort, that intimacy, that companionship we long for, that we get tastes of in our human relationships. And we're grateful and we rejoice and we praise the Lord for them, but they are simply a means of highlighting our true desire, which is to know God. The answer for how to have courage, how to obey when you're fearful, how to trust God and to do what is right when you're anxious, when you feel hopeless, is to remember that God is near. The writer of Hebrews notes in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, 
Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you had have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Jesus, after declaring that if you love him, you will keep his commandments, that you will obey him. He then provides the motivation for that obedience by saying that he is providing the Holy Spirit who will be with us. Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 14. Here Jesus provides a litmus test for our love. In verse 15 where he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, as I just noted. But then he goes on to say, in verse 16 of chapter 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, a helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is the promise that we have from God. Now why is the presence of God such a big thing? Well, like the child who feels safe in the arms of their parent, like one whose sadness is alleviated by the presence of another, like the husband who rejoices to see his wife, nearness of the other encourages us and gives us strength to press on. Have you noticed how much harder it is to do a task by yourself? Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, understood how hard it was to go by through life alone. He wrote in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, saying, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And that's speaking of human relationships. But we're also reminded that there is one who is closer than a brother. Here's the secret to Joshua's strength, to the strength of Moses, to the strength of all men and women of God. When they fear, when they are suffering, because they do. When they're anxious, because we've all experienced that, you're not alone. The secret is understanding, believing, and trusting that God is near. When Elisha's servant began to fear the surrounding peoples and cried out, What shall we do? We read in 2 Kings 6 that Elisha answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Oh, that our eyes would be open to see the presence of God in our lives. Have you learned to listen for him, to look for him? We often look for God in the miraculous. We expect it must be something big. That's when I'm going to see God. But have you learned to listen for God in the whisper and in the quiet places of your life? Elijah, when he was afraid for his life, fleeing from Ahab and Jezebel, in 1 Kings 19, God comforted him and said that God would come to him. First, there was a great storm, but God didn't come to him in the storm. 
There was the shaking of the earth, but God didn't come in the earthquake. There was a blazing fire, but God didn't come in the fire. Then there was the whisper of a gentle wind. And at that moment, Elijah stood up and went to the entrance of the cave and met God. Have you learned to listen for the whisper of God in your life? Have you learned to look for God working in your life? Have you learned to observe his provision in those whispering small ways? Don't despise these small things. If you struggle to hear God in the whisper, if you struggle to recognize his presence, the best way to develop this awareness is to practice giving thanks for the small things, really for all things. We are commanded to give thanks in all things, so practice it. Recognize God's provisions, his nearness, and the provision of food, and a place to lay your head at night, and the provision of your wife, your children, your husband. Give thanks for times of recreation, for the joy of grandchildren. Thank him for the safety of getting from point A to point B. This Friday, I was flying home from Virginia. I got to the airport. My flight didn't leave for several more hours. I was tired. I had a splitting headache. I just wanted to get on an earlier flight. I just wanted to get home. The other flight was 100% full. There was no seats left. And I was way down on the waiting list. So I just prayed. 20 minutes later, I found myself on the plane. It was a small thing, but it was far from nothing. The Lord is near. Are you listening? If we despise the small things, if we fail to give thanks to God for these things, things. Is it really any wonder that we fail so miserably at trusting God in the big things? Is it any wonder that our obedience falters, that we fail to trust God when we have not learned to give thanks in the small things and to recognize his provision in these areas of life? Verse 4 contains two small words sandwiched between the command to take courage and the assurance that God is with the remnant. And that is the phrase, and work. We are called to obedience. According to Ephesians 2.10, every believer has been, there have been works prepared for them to do throughout their life. We're called to do these faithfully. And yet if we have not learned to look and to listen for God, to recognize his presence, to feel his comfort, then we will struggle in that obedience. It's an interesting parallel that like post-exilic Israel, we are also called to be building up what God and the apostles call a spiritual temple. That is the people of God. We see this in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians 2 and especially throughout Hebrews. But what does it mean to be building up the temple of God today, the spiritual temple? It means to be busy with the work of evangelism. And sanctification in our own lives, lives, that is the rooting out of sin, the growing more into the conformity, looking more like Christ, growing into conformity with him. It means to serve the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters, to come alongside those who are hurting and discouraged, to pray with one another, to look how we can meet physical needs. And even beyond the walls of the church or the people in our own body, to our neighbors, to those in the community. Have you found your obedience waning? 
whether from fear or from difficulty, or perhaps even complacency? Do you need the reminder this morning that God is with you? I needed it this week. Each of us needs to be reminded of this. Not embarrassed by the fact that we need it, but to be reminded of this. Not one of us is immune to trials, difficulties, discouragement, and fear. Each of us, at times, struggle to obey, and we become paralyzed by these things. And so we need to remind ourselves of our identity and remind ourselves that God is near. And as we remind ourselves of the need to take courage, we remember those comforting words. And so we need to remind ourselves daily of God's presence in our lives. We need to listen and cultivate an ear that listens for that still, small voice. To listen for God in the whisper of the small things in your life. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've never experienced God's whisper in your life. You've never experienced that nearness. My prayer is that you would cry out to God for that nearness. You would confess your sin. You would turn to the one who loves you more than you will ever know. That you would then know the joy and the comfort that comes from knowing Christ. For each of you who claims to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you cultivating an awareness of his presence? Are you able to cast your burdens on the Lord? Our obedience will be stunted by the cares and concerns of this world if we do not learn to rely upon the nearness of Christ. St. Patrick of Ireland wrote a hymn, and one of the stanzas speaks to this nearness of Christ when it says, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this comforting reminder this morning that you are with us. Thank you for the example we have of Israel, this remnant that came out. Father, we thank you for just the patterns you show of your faithfulness and your goodness for the people whom you love. Father, may we, one, not downplay the hardship and the toil of this life, but recognize it for what it is so that against the blackness you may shine greater. And help us to turn to you, to look to you, to call to you. Help us to be faithful in proclaiming your nearness to us. And may we be a light to those around us. In your name, amen.